We just sang about the great I am. I take you to John chapter eight, it says this. Jesus said, very truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. At this they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. Jesus said, before Abraham was, in the Greek he says, ego eimi, which they understood. He was saying, I am. I am that I am. He was making himself equal to God. So at that they picked up stones to stone him. God himself coming to die for people is just remarkable. Um, So, but today we're in the book of Romans. We're in Romans chapter seven today in this series that I'm calling Salvation in Real Life. Not just salvation for a theology book, but salvation in real life. What does it look like to have a relationship with God? And this is part 11, uh, beginning in Romans 7. The title of the message is called The Key to Freedom. And again, we're in chapter 7 today, which is right in the middle of chapter 6, 7, and 8, where Paul talks about this word called sanctification, this... um, this process of becoming more like Jesus. Um, We trust Jesus as our savior. We come into relationship with God through Christ, but we don't just instantly become like Jesus. There's this process, There's, there's this relationship that God works out with us and begins working with us and on us and through us to make us more and more like Christ. And we're immediately sanctified, but then we're in this process of being sanctified. And then finally, when we stand before God someday, we're ultimately and totally and wholly sanctified. It's becoming more and more like Jesus. The word sanctified literally means to be set apart. Uh, you san- women may, in your home, sanctify the fine china. You set it apart, and you just get it out for certain occasions. It's special, it's set apart. And that's what God makes us when we become his children. We become set apart, special for his purposes. Now, I don't know if you feel like fine china. I don't these days, but uh, that's what the word means. And I wanna remind you from a couple weeks ago, we talked about union, union in the death and resurrection of Christ and how it breaks the power of sin over believers. That when Christ died, Through faith in him, we died. And when he was raised from the dead, we were raised as new people. We died, our old self was buried, and this new self is raised to a new life. Today, I wanna say this, well, we are free from the power and punishment of sin. We still reside in these bodies of flesh. Therefore, this message. Therefore, Romans chapter seven, and we're gonna go on. But before we do, I want you to see this short video by Tim Mackey. Tim is a gift to the church. He's out in, I think he's in the Portland, Oregon area. I know he's out in the Northwest. And he's got this ministry called The Bible Project. 
A lot of you might have seen their videos. They do these summary videos of books of the Bible. Well, this is a summary of just Romans one through four. And it's like about a seven minute video, but it will at least catch you up to the end of chapter four from his perspective on what the book of Romans is all about. And I'm excited for those of you who are wired to learn in this way, because Tim has got a very unique approach and a unique voice, and I love the guy, so watch this with me. Paul's letter to the Romans. It's one of the longest and most significant things ever written by the man who was formerly known as Saul of Tarsus. He was a Jewish rabbi belonging to a group known as the Pharisees, and he was passionate and devout to the Torah of Moses and the traditions of Israel. And he saw Jesus and his followers as a threat. But then he had a radical encounter with the risen Jesus, who commissioned him as an apostle, like an official representative, to the world of non-Jewish people called Gentiles in the Bible. And so he started going by his Roman name, Paul, and he traveled all around the ancient Roman Empire telling people about the risen King Jesus and forming his followers then into these new communities called churches. And Paul would occasionally write letters to these new Jesus communities to help them foster their faith or answer questions. And the book of Romans is one of these. It was actually written quite late in his career. Now, we know from the book of Acts that the church in Rome had existed for some time, that it was made up of Jewish and non-Jewish followers of Jesus. But at one point, the Roman emperor Claudius had expelled all of the Jewish people from Rome. And then about five years later, all of those Jews, including Jesus-following Jews, were allowed to return. And when they did, they found a church that had become very non-Jewish in custom and practice. And so this created lots of tension, so that by Paul's day, the Roman church was was divided. People disagreed about how to follow Jesus. They were debating about whether non-Jewish Christians should celebrate the Sabbath or eat kosher or be circumcised. And so Paul wrote this letter to accomplish a few things. He wanted this divided church to become unified and for a practical purpose. He was hoping that the Roman church could become a staging ground for his mission to go even further west all the way to Spain. And so these circumstances are what motivated Paul to write out his fullest explanation of the gospel, the good news that he was announcing about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Now, the letter is designed to have four main movements, but it's unified as one long-flowing exploration of the gospel. The gospel, Paul says, first of all, reveals God's righteousness, and then it also creates a new humanity, which fulfills God's promise to Israel. And so, it's this gospel that's going to unify the church. In this video, we're just going to explore the ideas in chapters 1 through 4. So Paul opens by introducing himself as an apostle appointed by God to spread the gospel about Jesus, how he's the Messiah of Israel who was raised from the dead as the Son of God, King of the nations. And Jesus now calls all humanity to come under his loving rule. And Paul says this good news about King Jesus is, first of all, God's power to save people who trust in him, and second, that it reveals God's righteousness. Now, Righteousness is a rich Old Testament word for Paul. It describes God's character, that he always does justice, what is right and what is good, but also that he is faithful and just to fulfill his promises. And Paul's saying that the story of Jesus shows how God has done both of these things. How? Well, he goes first into a long creative retelling of Genesis chapters 3 through 11. He shows how all the Gentile world, all the nations, have become trapped in the spiral of sin and selfishness. 
The human heart and mind are broken, Paul says. We've turned away from God to embrace idolatry, which means finding ultimate significance in created things and then giving ultimate allegiance to these things that are not God. This results in a distortion of our humanity and destructive behavior. And so what's left is a humanity that stands guilty as charged before a just and righteous God. To which the people of Israel might say, well, it's a good thing then that God chose our people out from among the nations. He saved us out of slavery in Egypt. He gave us the laws of the Torah, like the Sabbath and eating kosher and circumcision. And these all together show us how to live as God's holy people. But, Paul says, not so fast. He recalls the storyline of the Torah and of the rest of the Old Testament, which shows that Israel was just as sinful and idolatrous and morally broken as the rest of humanity. Israel is actually more guilty than the Gentiles, Paul says, because they have the Torah. They should know better. And so, Paul concludes, all humanity, Gentiles, Israelites, are hopelessly trapped and guilty before God. But that is not the final word. The good news about Jesus is God's response. Instead of holding humanity guilty, Jesus came as Israel's Messiah to die on behalf of all people as a sacrifice for sins. As our representative, Jesus took into himself all of the just consequences of the pain, the sin, and the death that we have caused in the world. And he overcame it all by his resurrection from the dead. It's his new resurrection life that he makes available to others. Jesus became what we are so that we might become what he is. And all of this, Paul says, is how God justifies those who trust or have faith in Jesus. Now, justification is another rich Old Testament term for Paul, and it's related to God's righteousness. It literally means to declare righteous. Because of what Jesus did on our behalf, we are given a new status before God. Instead of finding us guilty, God declares that a person is in a right relationship with him and is forgiven. Justification results in a new family. The person who trusts in Jesus is given a place among God's covenant people. Justification also results in a new future, which begins a journey of life transformation by God's grace. And so all of these things about justification are God's gift to those who through their faith are in Christ. And so this leads Paul in chapter 4 to explore the huge implications that all of this has for who can be a part of God's covenant family. He goes back to the story of Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. Before any of the laws of the Torah were given to Israel, Abraham was justified or declared righteous before God. How? Well, God promised that Abraham would become a father of a large multi-ethnic family that would receive God's blessing. But he and his wife, Sarah, they were really old. They had never been able to have children. But nonetheless, Abraham had radical faith and trust in God's promise. And so God declared him to be righteous. And so Paul says, now Abraham has become the father of God's new covenant family, and it's spreading all around the world. It's made up of Jews and Gentiles who have the same kind of faith and trust in the one who fulfilled God's promise to Abraham, Jesus the Messiah. So let's pause and summarize Paul's main ideas here in chapters 1 through 4, because they're the foundation for understanding the rest of the letter. All humanity is hopelessly trapped in sin and needs to be rescued. That rescue, however, is not going to happen by people trying to obey the laws of the Torah. Rather, God's righteous character has moved him to rescue the world through Jesus' death and resurrection. 
so that he could create that multi-ethnic family of Abraham based on faith as his own new covenant people. And so Paul's going to go on to show how this new family is a part of something much, much bigger that calls them to a whole new way of life together. But it's all going to be rooted in these core ideas explored in chapters one through four of Paul's letter to the Romans. And next week we'll pick up and we'll just watch a little bit of the next video so he can summarize chapter five and six before we finish chapter seven next week. So this morning, I want to read to you from Romans 7. You know, before I do, I was thinking about, was thinking about when I went to college. Some of you have just finished school. Some of you are going back to school. Maybe we've got some that are going to be starting college this fall. And I remember I'd been there for just a couple days, and I was in my room one night, laying in bed, reading this book called Knowing God by J.I. Packer. Some of you have seen it, maybe read it. And I was just like enamored with this, with the, what I was learning. And this skinny guy comes into my room. He says, say, dude, lights off. And I'm like, it's like 11.32. Like, I, I'm reading. I'll turn it off when I'm done reading. No, no, lights, are off, lights off at 11.30. You got to turn your light off. Thinking, okay, if I turn my light off, I'm not going to be able to read my book. And he's like, yeah, lights out 11.30. And so he reaches over and he flips the switch on my light. I, I got to say that there was a little bit inside of me that wanted to stop him from doing that and more. And I'm like, okay. okay. And so he walked out and I thought, huh, lights out at 11.30. 20 years old, been out of school for three years, working full time, decided to answer the call of God in my life and go off to Bible college and lights out at 11.30. Okay, well, it's a small sacrifice. And then I get to class and they introduce you to college with these syllabi, the syllabus for the course that tells you what you're supposed to do and what's required and uh, when it's due and all these things that you've got to do and the font and all that kind of stuff. And uh, actually, it wouldn't have said font. My, my current syllabuses say font. Back then, you know, you're lucky if you could find an electric typewriter to type your paper out on. Um, but I thought, okay, well, I've got, you know, okay, I got these rules, I gotta follow these rules. And then we went to a, an orientation seminar where the president of the college stood up and he said, this is the way we expect our students to live. These are our lifestyle covenant that we have. These are our standards, these are our values. And I'm like, hmm, okay, well, I'm pretty much on board with all that. So. You know, rules, rules. It kind of, kind of what people think about religion sometimes from the outside. They look in and they think it's just, you know, it's about rules. The things that you're not supposed to do, the things that you're supposed to do. And later on in chapter seven, Paul's actually going to say, I don't do the things that I'm supposed to do. And I know that I do the things that I'm not supposed to do. I'm a wretched guy. And part of chapter seven of Romans is trying to figure out, this is weird. Um, I'm supposed to live a holy life and sin has been destroyed and I am dead to sin, but, but I still sin. I still do these things. How, you know, how does this work? So let's start here in Romans chapter seven. It'll be on the screen, just verses one through 12. And then I just wanna look at three of those verses today. Romans 7, 1, do you not know, brothers and sisters, 
for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law, by the way, when Tim Mackey says Torah, he means the law of Moses. Mostly the first five books of the Bible, but also it can refer to one of the 613 commandments in the Old Testament for the Jewish people, so the Torah. That the law, or the Torah, has authority over someone only as long as that person lives. For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he's alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law that binds her to him. So then if she has sexual relations with another man while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from that law and is not an adulteress if she marries another man. So my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. For when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us so that we bore fruit for death. But now by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me, and through the commandment put me to death. So then the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. It would take a long time to twist and turn our way through all 12 of these verses, so I'm gonna pick three that can kind of teach us, for the most part, the whole passage. Verses four, six and eight. So let's go to verse four, which says this. So my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ. So the presence and frustration of sin in a holy life is what this particular chapter deals with pretty strongly. The presence and the frustration of sin in a life that's supposed to be holy. But it says, you also died to the law. After he talks about that thing about husbands and wives and you know when one dies, the other one's not bound in marriage anymore. He says, in the same way, you have died to the law. It's a little confusing. But he says, you've died to the law. And by the way, the law could be, for us today, the law would be behavior, ritual, tradition, tasks, good deeds, the do's and do nots, expectations and standards. Now we look at that and we say, well, well, we wanna do all that, right? I mean, we wanna have expectations, we wanna meet standards. 
Do you want to live by them? And do you want to be judged every time you fail one of them? This is the, in the context of a larger conversation of God in his grace and mercy accepting us. See, we can compare ourselves to each other, and there's comparisons to be made. You know, some of us are better at this and worse at that and all this stuff, but God is completely other. <laughs> we can't compare ourselves to him. When we have to be judged by the living God, we come up short every single time. There's no comparison, none at all. So if we wanna try to get into God's good graces or somehow be acceptable to him by the standards or rules or behaviors that we could manufacture or modify or generate in our lives, it's, it's over, it's over. The Old Testament, again, is filled with one failure story after another of people who tried to keep God's perfect law and couldn't. So, my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ. We've already been through chapter three and four and five and six, where in Christ, when Christ died, we died. When he died and was buried, it was like we died with him. We died and were buried. We died to the law. Hebrews calls the law obsolete in the life of a, of a believer. So we died to the law. So it then says, that you might belong to another. So you're not, you haven't been cut off from the law and you're just kind of floating out there in space, like if you had a million dollars and decided you know, to go up in space for a ride. You're just kind of floating out there, cut off from everything. But God wants to connect you to another, another person, that you might belong to another. So he wants us to move away from an adherence to a list and move toward a relationship to a person. Awkward silence. That's what it feels like to try to have a relationship with a list. That's what it feels like when you try to have a friendship with a set of rules. Awkward silence. It doesn't work. It doesn't work, and you know what's worse? The rules always win, because we, we can never keep up with them. And if on our own, again, we were to try to have a relationship with God based on anything we could possibly do, that doesn't work either. We come up short. So he wants to take our adherence to a list away and he wants to give us a relationship with a person. Remember that pesky resident assistant who came into my room and flipped the light? He wasn't even my RA, I found out. He was trying to expand his reach. He was from across the hall. He comes into my, sees a light on in my room and comes into my room, tell me what to do. So my RA, Peter Brock, Peter would come into my room 
and we would talk about stuff. He would ask me questions about my family and sports and the things that I liked, and, and I would ask him, we got to know each other. Our relationship was never about the rules. My relationship with Mark, <coughs> fear it, <coughs> Mark was only about the rules. He was a rule guy. As long as I was keeping the rules, he was happy. But with Peter, Peter was a relationship guy. He got to know me. And he knew that the rules were to help me get the most out of my college experience, the most out of my education. And that sometimes the rule would actually get in the way. And those rules he didn't bother to enforce because we, we weren't created for the rules, but the rules were created to help us. Jesus said that when he said the man wasn't created for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath was created for man. Oh, thank you. Okay, thank you. Robert Thomason, some of you guys would know this probably, passed away yesterday at 4 p.m. Yeah. R.T. R.T. is the one who gave us the golf balls we had here on Father's Day. So that's good news. The good news is for R.T., this morning because he's not sitting in a room in a bed without the freedom of movement. He's now in the presence of God. So that's a good thing. I want to say his wife's name is Donna, but I'm not certain about that. That doesn't sound right. Is it Donna? Okay. Let's pray for Donna, for her family. Lord, we thank you that RT's faith in you was strong. We got to talk about that. And Lord, this morning we pray for, for Donna, for her family, for the kids. God, we pray for strength and peace. God, I pray for comfort and encouragement. And God, I pray for Donna that you would bring around her the people that she needs through these next days and weeks, especially. And we thank you for them. And God, we grieve with her and with their family, but we also rejoice because the good news is true. And we thank you, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. So that's okay for me to lose my spot with something like that. So let me look back at my notes here. Yeah, Peter, relationships. Um, Peter made a relationship with me. To this day, I could call him up or message him on Facebook, and we have a relationship. We have a friendship that transcended all of the rules. And also there in verse 4, it says that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. Belong to Jesus, not just for the friendship, but that belonging to Jesus is the only way that we can bear fruit for God. Otherwise, we're a tree that bears no fruit, none at all. 
And the only way we bear fruit for God is when we're connected to uh, the one who said, I am the vine and you are the branches. You know, if, you connected, if you're connected to me, you can bear much fruit. So being connected and belonging to another, to him, who again was raised from the dead, therefore we're raised with him, so that we might bear fruit for God. And adherence to a list brings disappointment every time. A relationship with a person bears fruit. A relationship with a person bears fruit. Those professors that I had that gave me the syllabus, same with them, I got to know them. Oftentimes their wives and their kids, I got to spend time in some of their homes. Uh, We shared meals together. And I quickly realized that a syllabus was this helpful thing that the professor would give to me that would help me learn the things I needed to learn to go on and do the things that I needed to do. And without that, me, us as class members and the profs, we wouldn't have any road to drive on. There wouldn't be no direction for us. But when that syllabus included a relationship with a person in the front of the room, it became a very different thing. It didn't become about deadlines and due dates. It became, what is this guy trying to teach me? What are we talking about after class and in the evenings? What is important to him? What do I see being lived out in his life and in his family and in his marriage? And how does his teaching and his life and our relationship all work together? And the syllabus is just like, well, that's just a calendar for me. That's just, a, that's just helpful. It's helpful. But my, my connection isn't based on the syllabus. It's based on the prof who's got a relationship with me. I remember Dr. Hess, he was a psychology prof, and he looked just like Alfred Hitchcock. For those of you who are old enough to remember who Alfred Hitchcock was. Bald, um, bottom lip would stick out, and, and he would just walk back and forth across the front of the room as he lectured, back and forth. He never actually looked at us. He was always looking either this way or that way. And his hands were always at his sides with his palms facing back. And he just led with his stomach and he just went back and forth across the room. Class, why do you do what you do? That was the first question. Never thought of that before. That was helpful. I went over to his house and he's got this nice finished basement, really nice office area set up down there, beautiful desk, all of his books. He had his doctorate and all this stuff, right? And behind his desk, he has this little squat World War II issued chair. This little thing, all these knobs on the bottom of it, all this chrome and green, uh, army green. And, and it was just this squat little thing behind this big desk. And Dr. Hess was kind of a big guy. Well, I had in my office, I had this high back leather executive desk chair. The wood, I mean, this thing wasn't cheap. This thing was, I would bet this was at least $500 back in the day, back in the 70s and 80s. Well, my dad was a mover and he did these commercial moves. And every once in a while, he, could, he would get something that they were gonna toss. Well, they were gonna toss this thing. And so he put it on the back of his truck and he brought it home and he gave it to me and I took it, you know, with me down there and I, and I had it. And I thought that chair, Dr. Hess needs that chair. So I said to him, I got a, I got a much better chair, Dr. Hess. Would you like it? He sure would. 
he shows up in his van, I think it was like the next hour, maybe the next day, and we wrestled it into the back of his conversion van. He took it home. He used that chair for the rest of his life, like 20-something years he used that chair, I would find out later. And it, I was just thrilled. I was thrilled because that chair, you could flip the cushion over. The cushion was like this thick, big cushion. And the one side was a fabric and the other side was black leather. I mean, this thing had the, had the gold buttons along the, I mean, this thing was really nice. I got to give it to Dr. Hess and he got to use it. I never think about the due dates or the required readings, or the, I have no idea what I got in his class. I just remember him. I remember the relationship. God isn't in relationship with you so you'll know a list, or so that you'll feel guilty when you can't live up to his expectations. He would say, I thought I took care of that. I mean, obviously, you could, you could never live up to my expectations. I thought we took care of that on the cross. You're still feeling guilty about that? You're still wallowing in shame over that? You're still allowing our relationship to suffer because you can't be perfect when I'm the only one who's perfect? Because of that one verse in the New Testament that none of us really understand that says, I am perfect, so you be perfect? Are, are you still hung up on all that? God really likes you, and he loves you. But it's not amazing that he loves you, because he's supposed to love, right? It's amazing that he likes us. He not only loves us, but he likes us. And he actually wants us. And he's actually paved the way through his blood so that we can come to him. The grace is so scandalous, yes, that we've said it. Paul had to say well, I guess we don't have to worry about sin anymore because it's all forgiven. Paul says, God forbid, because it's not about that. But don't worry about sin so that it gets in the way of your relationship with him. So the adherence to a list brings disappointment, but a relationship with a person bears fruit. I remember going over to our preaching prof's house and uh, we walked in, he just lived in this little home and, and he said, here, come here. And we went in his kid's room and there were bunk beds and his kids were asleep, he had a boy and a girl. And he kind of woke him up a little bit and kissed him and hugged him. And then we went out and we sat in the living room and we talked. 30 some odd years later, I remember that. That marked me that he went in and he didn't say, oh good, the kids are asleep. But he wanted to go in there and he wanted to hug them and kiss them. Even if they woke up, it was okay. But just that little thing, just getting to know him and that relationship, that marked me. I think about that. And I thought about it when my kids were little. I got grandkids like that, that I'll hug. And it still is in my head. Why? Because I was in his home. I went into his kid's bedroom with him because he said, come here, look. I don't know if he knew that that would mark me, but it did. I remember the day my wife and I were in Pizza Hut. My daughter wasn't even one yet. 
She was, st- she was stuck on the end of the table on one of those chairs that you hook onto the table. And she was stuffing pizza crust in her face and she had sauce all over her face. He and his wife came by. They said hello and they left and we went up to the counter to pay afterwards and oh no, it was already paid for. It's a little thing, I don't know, what was it, 15 bucks, 10 bucks, I don't remember. But he paid for our meal. I remember it. It was in like 1987. I remember it. Relationship. What does God want you to remember about your relationship with him? What does he want you to think about? Does he want you to just sit around making lists of all your sins and all your failures? You better be better. You better strive to please him. He already did all the striving on the cross so that we already are pleasing to him. When we place our faith in him and we receive that forgiveness and that new life. Verse six says this, but now by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. You see those words, released from the law released from the list to serve in a new way of the spirit, not in the old way of the written code. Here's what I want you to see in this verse, that there is a new way and there is an old way. The old way is a science. The new way is an art. You've heard it's an art, not a science. See, a science is equations and numbers and finite, definite things. But an art is improvisational. And it can go in any number of directions. It involves creativity. That's the way of the Spirit. In fact, it says in John chapter 3, Jesus said this to Nicodemus. He said, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You know there's a part of you that's non-physical? The non-physical part of you. You ever thought about it? So it makes your eyes light up. Gives you your personality. Gives you your expression, your facial expression. You ever see a dead body? It doesn't have a facial expression. Deadpan, sorry. There's no facial expression. Why? Because they're not there anymore. The spirit is gone out of the body and present with the Lord. The spirit gives birth to spirit. You shouldn't be surprised, Jesus said, at my saying that you must be born again. The wind, it blows wherever it pleases. You hear it sound, but you can't tell where it comes from. You can't tell where it's going. So is everyone born of the Spirit. See, the law is a science, but the Spirit is a new way. It's an art. It's, some theologians use the term co-creators. We're co-creators with God. God tells us to rule over the earth and to subdue it. God tells us to be involved with him in creation. 
Be involved in his artistry, his art of creation. And the spirit is also a person, by the way. He's not an it, he's a he. There's the person of God, the Father, there's the person of God, the Son, there's the person of God, the Holy Spirit. See, we're involved with people here and one God. And then in verse eight, it says this. In verse eight, teaches us how to deal with sin in our lives. If you wanna know how to deal with sin in your life, verse eight explains a lot. It says, but sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by what? Afforded by the commandment. It produced in me every kind of coveting because apart from the law, sin is dead. I mean, if you didn't tell me that the cookies were in the top shelf, I wouldn't have been tempted by them. If you didn't put up 60 miles an hour on the sign, I wouldn't want to go 70. Because the law, seizing the opportunity that the commandment affords, actually creates in my flesh, in my sinful flesh, it creates more desire. And the law actually stirs up the sin. That's why he said, is at the end of the, what we read, is the law bad? No, 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 the law isn't bad. What's, what's evil is sin. The law isn't the problem. It's sin that is the problem. So don't say that the law is bad. The law is good. But when you, when you put that on me, the bad comes out of me. So if I just preach behavior modification, Y'all ain't getting anywhere, because we all fail that. So when you impose this on me, bad comes out of me. That's why God says you have died to the law, because Jesus fulfilled the law, and therefore we have to be in Christ. So when we're in Christ, we're forgiven. When we're in Christ, place our faith in him, he gives us his righteousness and we become righteous before him without sin, blameless. I think it says in Colossians, blameless before him in Christ. So God, I'm not gonna come to you. You know, the Israelites did that. Yep, God, we will do it all. We will do what you've said. <clears throat> wah, 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 wah. They didn't do it, they couldn't do it. Proof that the Savior was needed, that the Messiah was necessary, that someone had to come who could die for the sins of mankind, of humanity. And Jesus did that, he came. So don't go coming to God every day based on how well you did yesterday, because then don't come to God. If you're basing it on how well you did yesterday, it's not gonna work. You base it on Jesus and on your relationship with him. So he has released us from the law and he has connected us to another, another who loves us, another who said, I will die for you because I want you that much. I love you that much. And you know what, you're gonna sin and it's gonna hurt you when you do. 
but it's never going to wreck our relationship because my blood shed for you and your faith in me makes you clean, gives you everything you need. If you want to continue to struggle with sin, focus on the commandment. If you want freedom and fruit, focus on the relationship. So what are you going to focus on? How do you deal with sin? Don't focus on the commandment. Don't focus on, oh, I can't do this, I can't do this, I can't do this. Because Paul says, what I don't want to do, I do. And what I know I should do, I never get around to it. I do the opposite. Don't focus on the commandment. You build a relationship with Jesus. Because when I thought about relationship with my profs, I never thought about the syllabus. Relationship with my RA, we never thought about dorm rules. We never thought about that. Not at all. So while we are free from the power and punishment of sin, let's finish the statement. We will reside, we still reside in bodies of flesh. Even though we're free from sin, therefore, we do not focus on the rules, but we rest in the relationship, and that is good news. People walk away from caricatures and distortions. You know, there's a segment of cultural Christianity in every culture that creates this caricature of Jesus. It's not really Jesus. This caricature of Christianity that's not really Christianity. Well, you gotta do this, that. How about a God who loves you, wants a relationship with you. Yes, a God who will judge sin. Yes, a God who will judge those who reject him. They're already judged, they're already, we're already in our sin. We're born into the sin of Adam, we saw in Romans chapter five. But a God who provides a remedy for that. But this caricature and this distortion of Christianity, that is what people reject. Very rarely will people reject true love. That's what God offers us, is true love. That president of my college, the, um, the guy who stood up and talked about the, the covenant of behavior and lifestyle and all of that, I got to know him as well. We spent a lot of time together. I remember going over to his, the president's house one night and uh, sitting with him in the, in the back family room. He had a TV table, uh, or not, a card table in front of him. And he, all, he had all of his bills and stuff laid out on the card table. This was back when you actually had to balance your checkbook. He was balancing his checkbook. I remember when he came to my two of the churches I was at, I asked him to come and speak. I remember what he spoke on in one of my churches. I remember his time in our home with his wife and that my daughter, who was little at the time, ripped Mrs. Jackson's Bible, ripped a page out of Ephesians. My wife and I were mortified. She ripped the word of God right out of the president's wife's Bible. And, uh, and then I remember the phone calls that we would have when we were further away. I remember how he recommended me to my first full-time ministry. And then the last call that we had when we talked about his son who was 48 and had just died from cancer. And I was like 43 at the time. And I remember feeling so bad for him. 
we talked about it. We had a relationship. See, God wants to have a relationship with you. That's why we come here, by the way, so that we can have relationships with each other, so we get to know each other, be in each other's lives and help each other and be there for each other, never to judge, but always to love. Sometimes love is tough, but never to judge, always to love and speak the truth to one another. See, it's all about relationship. So don't get it twisted around. Throw the list out. Join hands with God through his spirit. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you love us and want to have a relationship with us. And Lord, it's so weird that we want to have relationships here on the planet And somehow we don't understand that we get that from you. We do have our Father's eyes. We get it from you, our Heavenly Father. Help us to understand how much you want to have a relationship with us. And Lord, I pray that you would minister, God, to the person or people in this room who feel the furthest away from you right now because they haven't been able to keep the rules. And God, I pray that your love would, would overwhelm them and that they would turn to the cross and see that the bloodshed is for them and accept that free gift of forgiveness and eternal life. And Lord, for those of us who have been in faith relationship with you for many years, and yet yet we still allow sin to come between us because that's what we're focused on. God, help us to turn our gaze toward you and turn our, our investment of time and energy toward talking with you, hearing from you in your word, talking to you and hearing from you in prayer serving you by loving other people and meeting the needs of those around us. Lord, thank you that we are dead to sin, we are dead to the law, but that we are alive in Christ. God, this week may may we go out and be people of faith, people of hope, people of love, and people of holiness because we, we hold tightly on to that righteousness and that holiness that we get from Christ. And we live in that. And we live into that. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.